the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. As we continue our study of the law of God, um, this morning we turn once again to the Leviticus chapter 4. We're going to pick up really where we left off last week. Um, and if you remember from last week, this is the law concerning the, it's really the fourth in a series of offerings that the people of Israel were to bring to the Lord as they worshipped and, and served Him. These were, their, these were their covenant obligations. See, whenever there is a, a covenant relationship between two parties, there were covenant obligations on each side. Um, so, so think of it this way. Consider the traditional or, or the marriage vows. Um, the traditional vows that most of us are probably familiar with are actually from the Book of Common Prayer, and they usually go something like this. In the name of God, I, John, take you, Jane, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day, I should say, I, Mike, take you, Jane, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, and to love and cherish till death do us part. This is my solemn vow. And then, of course, the, the bride also has those same covenant obligations. Well, in the, in the Mosaic covenant, um, this was the Lord's vow. It's found in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. He instructed Moses, the covenant mediator, to say to the people, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then just down in verse 8, it says this, All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And so the law was given as the, as the covenant obligations for Israel. In order to be Yahweh's treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, they were obliged to obey His law. Now, I'm hopeful that as we, as we consider this entire book and put all of these things together, I'm hopeful that you will keep in mind this passage uh, among others. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. This is covenant language that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so I'm hopeful that you're making the connection between, uh, between the Mosaic covenant that we're looking at here in the book of Leviticus and the laws that the, the Israelites had to keep and the new covenant and, and the law that Christ perfectly fulfilled. And so we come once again to Leviticus chapter 4, which is this fourth offering, and it's called the sin offering. Well, let's read this whole chapter again. It's, a, it's on the long side. 
but God will add his blessing whenever his word is read. So I'm going to read Leviticus chapter 4 again. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about the things not to be done and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for that sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the loins and the long lobe of the liver he shall remove with the kidneys just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails, its dung and all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and they realize their guilt... When the sin that they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. And the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is in the tent of meeting before the Lord. And the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all its fat he shall take from it and burn it on the altar. Thus uh, Thus shall he do with the bull as he did with the bull of the sin offering, so he shall do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them and they shall be forgiven." And he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it up as he burned the first bull. Um, It is the sin uh, offering for the assembly. When a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, And shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it uh, on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out the rest of its blood on the base of the altar of burnt offering. And all its fat he shall burn on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. So the priest shall make an atonement for him... uh, For him, for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. 
If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and pour it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the Lord's food offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed and he shall be forgiven. All right, let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would bless this reading of your word. There are things that are hard to understand, hard to apply to ourselves, Lord, and so I pray that you would give us ears to hear today. Help us to understand these things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, uh, last week is acted really as sort of a, 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 a sort of an introduction to this chapter. And there are three details that I needed to point out, and I want to review them for us here, so that we can both understand the, uh, both the, the, the extent of the contamination of sin and also our, our need for purification. And that right there is the, the need for purification is the first detail. And I think it's helpful to think of this offering as a purification offering as well as a sin offering. That because the, uh, the Lord is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, as the prophet Habakkuk says, his people must therefore be purified before they come into his presence with singing, before they come into his courts with praise. The second detail, first we need to be purified. The second detail that we looked at last week is that these verses deal with what the Scripture calls here unintentional sins. We saw that in in other places in the Old Testament in particular, this type of sin, unintentional sin, is set over and against high-handed sins. That is, those sins of of defiance and and rebellion and, and, and sins of intention. We saw that these things are really those, those sins which, when, when brought to our intention, these unintentional, as the word calls it here, these unintentional sins, when they're brought to our attention, we quickly repent of them and seek to be restored. Now, to be fair, we didn't really get into this last week, but there are more than just those two categories of sin particularly as delineated by God's law. So we're going to get into this in the next couple of chapters, in particular 5 and 6. But even within this category of 
unintentional sin, there are a couple of subcategories that distinguish those sins that are, that are purified by this offering and those that require a, a compensation and a, and a guilt offering. We'll see that in the next couple of chapters. And sort of as an aside, when we think of those high-handed, rebellious, intentional sins, there's also some kind of subcategories there as well. So we're gonna, you're going to see throughout the law of God, there are, there are capital offenses that require the death penalty. But there are also those sins that require the sinner to be cut off from the people, removed from the covenant community because of their unrepentant sin. Unless we think that those things are harsh, that the, the death penalty is harsh, especially when um, we consider what some of the uh, sins were that were worthy of the death penalty, we are reminded that the wages of sin is death. Not just certain sins, not just the high-handed sins, the wages of sin is death. Then the third detail here that we looked at last week, it pertained to the fact that the sins of the anointed priest, the high priest, they were weighted heavier than the sins of the other leaders, the leaders of the, of the tribes and of the clans, as verse 22 talks about. And then likewise, sort of addition to that or, or similar to that, the sins of the entire congregation when the whole people of Israel, when the whole congregation sinned, it required a more costly sacrifice than those of, of individuals or, or common people, as verse 27 calls. We saw the reason for this was because of the danger of leading people astray. So the New Testament epistles are filled with warnings to avoid false teachers. And those who, as, as Paul will warn the Ephesian elders, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And so the Lord holds teachers of his word to a higher standard, a, a standard of both doctrinal purity purity of the teaching and a character that is to be above reproach. In other words, he must, the teacher of God's word, must live like he believes what he's actually saying. And then, of course, there is the issue of the entire congregation that has departed from the truth. And so for us today, this is those who those churches who claim to be a Christian church, who put a, a sign out front that says, in front of their building, that says that they are a Christian church. Maybe even they wear fancy vestments. They have a liturgy of a high church with candles and whatever. Romans chapter 1, verse 32 says this, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, various sins, but they give approval to those who practice them. And we can only say, woe to those churches who do not repent of their wandering from the truth. 
Now, as we see here, as we get into these passages, and we talked about all of those things last week, but as we get into this chapter a little bit more in depth, there are four kind of sections of obligations regarding this law of the sin offering. There are specific instructions for the anointed priest, for the entire congregation of Israel, for the leader, that is the leaders of families and clans and tribes, etc., sort of like civil leaders, and then finally for common people, for normal Israelites. And, and as we've done in our, um, our study of this book so far, each chapter, we're going to look at this through the lens of a kind of a topical outline, so to speak, as opposed to verse by verse, or, or maybe a better way to say this is we're, I'm going to give you a, a theological outline. Um, so there are four theological truths here that we should hold tightly to. Four theological truths that should give us hope as we live as new covenant people in a sin-stained world. Let me give you all four right now and then we'll go through these. The first is this, God provides purification through a substitute. Through a substitute. You're going to hear that word a lot in the book of Leviticus. God provides purification through a substitute. Secondly, with hearts sprinkled clean. Hearts sprinkled clean. Third, God is pleased to purify. God provides purification through a substitute. Hearts sprinkled clean. God is pleased to purify. And, and finally, and I hope that you heard this as we read through the chapter, forgiveness is granted. Forgiveness is granted. Remember the proclamation of John the Baptist? I, I, I said this, in fact, I, we put it in the bulletin so that it would be in front of our eyes every week if you look at the bulletin. The proclamation of John the Baptist, I, I said this at the very beginning, this statement does not make any sense without the law of God. When he saw Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God provided purification through a substitute. You've probably already put this together, but this first theological truth is not only seen in this particular offering. The truth of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is seen all through the law of God, and even all through the Old Testament, in all kinds of, of types and shadows. And so when John the Baptist makes that proclamation, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, when he says that, he's saying that with the, with the advent of the Messiah, with the coming of Jesus Christ the Messiah, the reality of the shadow has come. The fulfillment of the promises is here. And one aspect of the shadow, so, so Christ is the reality, Christ is the one who casts the shadow, one aspect of this foreshadowing of Christ is this provision of purification through a substitute. So when we look at the, at the sacrificial system, we've seen it so far in this book, several sacrificial offerings that are brought. When we look at the system, we see blood, entrails, the long lobe of the liver, we see death and difficulty. This was bloody 
hard work. And it was daily. It was never-ending for the Israelites. When we look at this, we see, we see legal demands. But even in the midst of that, don't, don't miss the good news. I, I'm going to keep repeating this. Yahweh provided a substitute. The wages of sin is death. And Yahweh, God, the Lord, provided a substitute. And so even here in this chapter, we should see this as God's gracious legal demands of his people. Remember, this, this sin offering, even a, even a purification offering, was brought by covenant members. This offering was brought by people who said, all that the Lord has uh, spoken, we will do. And they were to bring this if they wished to maintain fellowship and access to their God, to Yahweh. This law, as we read through this, it, it spells out the procedures that the members of the covenant community had to follow in their worship in order to obtain forgiveness and, and purification. And so this specific sacrifice or sacrificial offering, it deals with their pollution, it deals with their defilement, which was caused by their sin. We could even go so far as to say that that this law, as we think about application for us, this law provides part of at least the, the basis of the biblical teaching about the continued sanctification purifying, being made holy of God's people. So consider, Martin Luther, um, he's famous for a few things. One of them, or 95 of them, are called theses. The first three theses say this. Number one, the first statement that uh, Luther made. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Constant repenting of our sin. Then he goes on to say this, as he's pushing back against Roman Catholicism. He says, this word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is confession and and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. Yet it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. Here's what that means. Sanctification or our growth in Christ-like holiness will be marked by genuine repentance. And genuine repentance will be marked by an obedience to the Lord's commands. If we are to grow in Christ, we will be repentant people. We will be quick to repent. If we are genuinely repentant people, you're going to be able to see that. We're going to be obedient to the Lord's commands. And so in this case, for the people of Israel, even the hard commands like this. Well, this this sacrifice, by its very nature, it shows us that, that first of all, all sin, known or unknown, whether it is only known by you or whether you even know that you've sinned, all 
sin must be forgiven. All sin must be forgiven because all sin defiles us. It makes us um, defiled, not holy. It stains us. These unintentional sins or sins of of ignorance, they stain and they mar humanity. The, The Apostle Paul will use the phrase, so they are without excuse in Romans chapter 1. And he was speaking about God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature, which reveals God's wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So that even without God's word, even when we see the sunrise in the morning, we should know that our God is a holy God. That our creator is a righteous creator. And we are not. And we need to repent of our not. Now again, here in this chapter, um, these are sins which have either been committed by ignorance So I honestly didn't know it was sin or I didn't know that I did that. Or by negligence, which is really just a failing to guard our hearts. But the common denominator, which is the instruction when when they're to bring this offering, the, the common denominator is found in the phrase, when they realize their guilt. When they realize their guilt. We see this for the, starting at the end of the chapter, we see it for the common people, verse 27. That phrase is used. It's used again for the leaders in verse 22. For the whole congregation in verse 13, but not for the priest. Not for the priest in the first section. See, it's understood that the priest is just simply going to sin and not only bring, bring guilt upon himself, but as the covenant mediator between God and the people, as the one who will, remember this sacrifice becomes the basis for the day of atonement. We'll, we'll see that in chapter 16. He, he is the one who will go into the Holy of Holies and make an atonement for the entire people. Um, he brings not only guilt upon himself, but because he is the covenant mediator, he will bring guilt on all of the people as well. Look at verse 3. If it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. Now, now listen also to this. Um, the book of Hebrews shed so much light on all of this, all of the book of Leviticus, but on this issue particularly. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 to 28, speaking of the, of the ascended and glorified Jesus Christ, says this, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, He has no need, like those high priests here, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is a little bit of a... There's a little bit of a divergence there. 
I want to bring your attention, though, back to this, back to this point, when they realize their guilt. So Christ is our high priest. Keep that in your mind all through the book of Leviticus, okay? Just keep that in your mind. But come back to this, this, uh, bring your attention back to this statement, when they realize their guilt. The common denominator in the rest of these offerings, the rest of these groups here, is repentance. The common denominator is repentance. Now, I may have mentioned this last week, but this idea is David's response of humility to Nathan's scathing confrontation. When Nathan said to him, you are the man confronting David's sin, David immediately said, I have sinned against the Lord. He was immediately repentant. See, here with these offerings, this could be a sin that, that verses 13 and 14 indicate a sin that is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, something that's unknown. We've just sort of wandered or maybe been led astray. And before you know it, we've added... Um, various pagan rituals along with our worship of Yahweh, right? We see the, the high places not being torn down as we read through the books of Kings and Chronicles. They've added various elements of pagan idolatry in with their worship. Think of them making the golden calf at the foot of the mountain. Here is the God that delivered you out of Egypt. No. No, that's, that's just our jewelry that's been melted down and out popped a calf. Could be something um, done in a moment of carelessness. Something that was done rash. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gotten lazy in your spiritual life and just sort of wandered off and next thing you know you're sinning in some way? Something, maybe a angry reaction, a sinfully angry reaction. I'm sure that you have. We all have. We've responded without thinking, right? We've reacted in anger. We've let our eyes linger a little too long. We've let our minds wander into places they should not go. And we do those things often without even trying. The same is true for the people of Israel. And under the law here, that is defiling. This defiles the Israelite and he needs to be purified. So put all of this together. When conviction grips your conscience, when someone comes to you and says, you've sinned against me, you really hurt me when you said such and such. When repentance nudges at your heart, For the Israelite, under the Mosaic Covenant, a purification offering would need to be made because all sin, known or unknown, must be forgiven and so purification is required. Purification is required, the Lord said. Now the fact that 
that Yahweh graciously provided this sacrifice for his people, it reveals that purification was absolutely necessary for his people in order to deal with not only their sin, but even the defiling effects of sin. Again, David, just after being confronted with his sin, uh, about his sin with Bathsheba, David writes in Psalm 51, verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Purification is required. David knew that. I also mentioned this last week, and we're going to get into this more when we get up into chapter 12 and beyond. But throughout the, throughout the Old Testament, we also see the need for purification at times when a, when a person doesn't necessarily sin. So for example, I said last week after childbirth, or in the case of certain skin diseases or hemorrhages, those, those chapters of Leviticus that we are all dreading, maybe some of us more than others, <laughs> these are... These are things that are still connected to sin in one way or another. They're specifically the effects of sin in the curse, for example. We are so defiled by sin that we need a purifying in nearly every area of life. And one other characteristic um, of the fact that God has provided a substitute is that he has made his grace available for all. Now in this context, in the, in the context of the law here, we're talking about all who were a part of the covenant, all who were a part of this community, uh, of the Israelites, all of Israel. Later, he will graft in uh, repentant Gentiles as well. We will see that in, um, it really takes shape in the book of Acts. But this here is talking about the people of Israel specifically. And so different types of animals would be brought for the different groups here. High priest would bring a bull. That's the same for the entire congregation that they would bring for this offering. We see that in verses 13 and 14. The bull would be the most expensive and therefore most valuable of the livestock that they raised. A male goat would be, would be offered by a leader, uh, leaders of tribes and clans. We see that in verses 22 and 23. Versus a, a female goat or a female lamb for the common Israelite, which are a little more um, plentiful, a little less valuable, a little less expensive. And then like with the burnt offering in chapter 1, the Lord, in his kindness, he also makes provision for the poorest of his people to be cleansed from their sin. Jump into chapter 5. We'll get into this more next week, but just look at verses 7 and 11. Chapter 5, verse 7 says this, But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. Jump down to verse 11. But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for his sin offering. He shall put no oil in it, put no frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. So on the one hand, this says, all of this says, that the more influential the person, the costlier the offering. 
And so the sins of the, of the prominent were more defiling. We talked about that already. We talked about that last week. But on the other hand, purification is available to all, anyone. No one is beyond God's grace. The person who is genuinely repentant could be made pure by the grace of God, by following his law. The sinners, or in the case of congregational sin, their representative heads, throughout, uh, by, by bringing the, the appropriate animal to the, to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, they placed their hands on it as a formal act of dedication, and they killed it. They offered it up to the Lord. No one is beyond God's grace. And in doing this, in bringing this animal to the entrance of the tent of meeting, they were acknowledging, by, by killing this animal, they were acknowledging that the wages of sin is death. That without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Yet this is, this is also an acknowledgement that God, in His grace, I'm going to keep banging this drum, God, in His grace, provided a substitute. For their purification. The thing that we shouldn't miss about all of this, there's a lot here, but the thing that we shouldn't miss about this is that this was a constant lifetime cycle for the people of Israel. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, verses 24, uh, 24 to 26, and I want to read this in the King James Version. Because it really, I really like the imagery of the old English here. Galatians 3.24 says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. The, the law of God. Even though these are, these are gracious legal requirements, the law of God was still a schoolmaster. Now, that concept might be lost on homeschool families. It might be lost on the younger generations. But the schoolmaster was not a loving, benevolent person. Right? Um, other versions use the word guardian there, but that's not quite right. The schoolmaster with a ruler in his hand, ready to crack you across the head at the first sign of misbehavior. You have to be at least 50 to understand that, to even picture that that was a reality not that long ago. Now they're going to jail, but... Consider what Paul is saying there. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster, ruler in hand, yardstick in hand, ready to crack us over the knuckles, over the head, bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law of God is ready to crack you across the head and say you sinned again and again and again. And tomorrow, you're going to do it again. And you're going to need to bring that same offering again and again 
and again. Can you see why we need Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world once and for all time? Can you see why we need our hearts sprinkled clean? Let's consider that with hearts sprinkled clean. Just like with the burnt offering and the peace offering in chapters 1 and 3 of Leviticus, with this sin offering, the the blood ritual, that is what the priest does with the blood, is central here as well. But this law, I don't know if you caught this when I read it, this law prescribes a more detailed application of the blood. So notice that for both um, the leader and the common person, in fact, look at verse, uh, verse 25. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. Jump down to verse 34 as it addresses the, the common people. Verse 34 says, Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering, pour out the rest of its blood on the base of the altar. Okay. For us to understand this, I need to briefly explain the tabernacle layout. Um, the tabernacle is this large tent. But by way of analogy, think of a, think of a typical house. And so the entrance of the tent of meeting is the front door, or really, if we think of it, think of it as the the gate to the yard, okay? Um, Inside that front door, inside the yard itself, is the altar of the burnt offering. That's where this blood ritual takes place for these two sections here, the, the leader and for the individual people. So a repentant sinner would bring his, a burnt offering and a sin offering to the entrance, lay his hand on them, kill them. Then the priest would then take them, again, verse 25, then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering on his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering, pour out the rest of his blood at the base of the altar of the burnt offering. And then the same thing for the common people that I read, it, you can see it in verse 33, 33 and 34. So the sin of the individual, whether it's the leader or a common person, the sin of the individual did not penetrate as far into the holy place. So only the courtyard was purified, the outer area around the tabernacle. Now, inside the tabernacle, there are two other rooms, so to speak. They're tents, but there's two other rooms. There is the holy place and the most holy place or the Holy of Holies. And there's a veil that separates those two. You've heard of that veil before. In the holy place is another altar, the altar of incense. I don't know if you picked that up when we were reading it. There's the altar for the burnt offerings in the courtyard, and inside the holy place there's the altar of um, the incense. Um, In the most holy place, separated by that veil... The high priest only went in there once a year. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. That's where God physically met with his people once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so for the sin of the anointed high priest, or if the whole congregation repents of their sin, the impurity, this is what I want us to see here, the impurity is greater. The holy place also had to be purified. 
with some of the blood sprinkled on the veil inside. So think of, if we're thinking about the analogy of a house, um, this is crude, but think of the most holy places like the master bedroom, right? Not anybody is well. Sometimes the kids aren't even welcome in there, right? That's, that's just your place. Visitors don't go into your bedroom typically. That, that's sort of the idea here, the most holy place. The holy place is like your living room. That's where your family lives. Sometimes people can come in there. Friends and family can come in there. We don't let just anybody into your home. That's the idea behind some of this. So for the sin of the anointed priest, the high priest, or if the whole congregation repents of their sin, as I said, the impurity is greater. And so um, the holy place also had to be purified with some of the blood sprinkled on the veil. Let me read to you verses 5 to 7 again. So chapter 4, verse 5 says this, And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood, sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of the burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Did you get all of that? There's a lot going on there. Blood is sprinkled seven times. Seven represents perfection or completion. Think of the creation account. Seven times blood is sprinkled in front of the veil that separates the most holy place from the holy place, the specific place where where God dwells with his people. And it, it, it separates that from the holy place which contains the incense altar. And then also, so Blood is sprinkled on the incense altar, on the veil, and also out on the burnt offering altar in the courtyard. Here's the point. The sins of the priests, those of the entire congregation, infected the entire tabernacle, and they required a more thorough cleansing as a result. In fact, apart from from those parts that were offered on the altar for a burnt offering, the rest of the sacrifice would not be eaten but it would be taken outside the camp and burned. You can see that in verses 8 to 12. Why? Why was this taken outside the camp and burned? Well, this brings us back to what we talked about church leadership last week. Why are unrepentant, sinning elders to be rebuked publicly? 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20 says this, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Do you know why he says that? Listen to what Paul had already said to Timothy just a chapter earlier. He said, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you, your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. 
But those who persist in sin lead their hearers astray and must be rebuked. Sin defiles everything. And some sin, and, and some people's sin, defiles more than others and must be completely removed, must be completely uh, taken away, or it will spread to the entire congregation. The people of God are obligated to be purified from their sin and to approach Him in worship as if they have been purified from their sins. Turn over as we consider this idea of heart sprinkled clean. Hebrews chapter 10. Let me just read these verses. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter, you're not allowed to have favorites, but this is a pretty good one. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, the veil, that is through his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All of this, all of this shows us that God is pleased to purify repentant people, repentant sinners. God is pleased to purify. So in order to close out the matter here, to, to signify the, the completion of the sacrificial offering, the rest of the animal needed to be dealt with. And so like with the peace offering, and probably for the same reasons, the fat, the kidneys, the liver, they were burnt. And as I said, the rest of the animal would be taken outside the camp to be burned. Uh, later, we're going to find out that in some cases, the meat was to be given to the priests to eat. But all of this symbolized to the repentant worshipers that the transaction was complete. That purification has been accomplished. When that animal was burnt up and consumed and was gone, forgiveness was granted. Until the next time their sin was exposed. Until the next time their sin was brought to their attention then they would do this all over again. But until then, forgiveness was granted. Forgiveness was granted. I have this underlined in red in, in my Bible. Verse 20, And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. Verse 26, So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. Verse 31, and the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. Verse 35, and the priest shall make atonement for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. Forgiveness. The sanctuary of the Lord here in the law has been purified. Restoration is possible. But I want you to remember one thing. I've referred briefly a couple of times to David 
In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13 says this. David said to Nathan, he's repenting here, immediate repentance. You are the man, Nathan said to him. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. David was forgiven immediately. Immediately upon repentance. Not because of a ritual. He said that he didn't wait until after he'd gone through all of these offerings and then forgiven him. He was forgiven because God said he was forgiven. He was forgiven because God knows David's heart. He knew that David was repentant. And and his prophet, Nathan, said to him, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. So as we come to the table this morning, I want to go back and read from Hebrews chapter 7. I read part of this earlier, but I want to read Hebrews 7.22. Consider the idea of covenant obligations. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of his people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever." Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, the true tabernacle that the Lord set up and not man. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an easeful conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Pray with me. Fathers, we come to your table now as we consider all of this, the law of God, sin that so um, not only does it entangle, sin that just defiles us. It's all around us, Lord. We're so contaminated we don't even know. 
We don't even know when we sin. When our minds wander, when our hearts are far from you. But Father, it is through the grace of Jesus Christ. Through his blood. That our great high priest, Jesus, offered up himself. The Lamb of God who takes away our sin once and for all time. And so we come to your table, Lord, as a people rejoicing that we may boldly approach the throne of grace, that that veil no longer needs to be um, purified every time we sin. It has been torn. That we have access through Jesus Christ to your throne. And we no longer need a human mediator because we have Jesus Christ who always lives to intercede for us. And so as we come to your table, Lord, we come with the people who are rejoicing. Father, I pray that you would transform us to Christ-likeness. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.